Hello to you there, friends and neighbors. Just want to say thank you for joining me for another episode here of the Old Country Church. As I'm recording this, it's starting to rain pretty hard, and uh, I do these shows out here in my building, and uh, there's a tin roof on here, so I'm going to try to hurry this one up. That way, uh, the rain don't drown out the recording. I'm going to read something for you that I read myself today, and it uh, really spoke to me, and I wanted to share it with you. This message here is from Pastor Todd Nybert from Todd's Road Grace Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If anybody's close to there, I recommend that uh, maybe go in and see Todd preach in person. This message comes from Proverbs 18:19. The title of this message is A Brother Offended. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, it says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. Todd writes, Who has not felt offended and done wrong by a brother? I would say no one is exempt from this experience, and who has not offended a brother? In many things we offend all. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, it is a very painful thing to feel disrespected judged, slighted, and misrepresented. A person is harder to, to warm back than a fortified city, and the contentions they feel towards the offending party are like the bars of a fortress. May the Lord give me grace to not offend and humble myself when I do. And when offended, may I not hold a grudge and bear resentment and be hard to warn. If men are offended by our gospel, so be it. But to offend a brother is a thoughtless, insensitive, arrogant, and selfish thing. And to stay offended is equally as wrong. May we be quick to humble ourselves and seek forgiveness when we do offend. May we be quick to forgive from the heart when we are offended. Friends, I'm going to play a sermon for you from Pastor Bruce Crabtree out of Newcastle, Indiana. The title of this sermon is What Do You More Than Others? May the sermon you're about to hear be a blessing to you. May God bless you. First, I'm going to play a hymn for you. Then we'll get into the sermon from Pastor Bruce Crabtree. Beneath the cross. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I find a place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am for hands that should discard me hold wounds which tell me come beneath the cross of Jesus my unworthy soul 
Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's Gospel chapter 5, and I want us to read verses 44 through verse 48. This is our last study in the fifth chapter of Matthew. Verse 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute or greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publican so? Be ye therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Our Lord had been correct in some misconception that these scribes had had concerning uh, religion. And we know from what our Lord said about him in other passages here, and especially in the book of Matthew, that their religion was just an outward form. That's all it was. Outward praying and outward fasting and things like that. It could, and probably was, according to some, a great burden to their flesh. Their religion was a burden to their flesh. They were very careful about so many things. And they had all of these traditions. 
in all of the ceremonies, all of the commandments of men, they had very little left of God's Word. Very little. Just enough to try to make the religion legitimate. But my goodness, they did all kinds of things. They fasted often. They were careful of what they ate. They were careful of what they drank. They were careful of the friends they had. They were careful where they went, what they did. Uh, they just had so many rules. I, I heard one lady say that, that even in this day, and we don't have as many today, I guess, or they don't as they did back then, but she said that she had 600 uh, traditions that she had to be concerned about as a Jew. And that's a burden, isn't it? Man, you talk about a burden to have to be concerned about all of these traditions and the commandments of men and all the ceremonies that they had to go to. And the Apostle Peter says it like this in Acts 15. He said it was a yoke about our necks, which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. That's how burdensome their religion was. And yet years, the thing about the message that our Lord preached to them, He made two statements. And, and they're tremendous statements when you think about how strict the religion of the Pharisees was. You remember the Apostle Paul, what he said about it, I lived after the strictness of the Pharisees and the traditions of the Father. So it bears very strict religion. And the Lord in this message here on the Mount, a sermon on the Mount. He makes two statements about these Pharisees and these scribes. One, he said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying there, their religion as strict as it is, it's not strict enough. It's not strict enough. And number two, he said this, unless I misunderstood what he says here in the seventh chapter of this message, he said, he said, the, the religion, the scribes and Pharisees, is a broad way that leads to destruction. Now, isn't that two amazing statements to say about such a strict religion? It's a broad way. It's strict. In their own eyes, it's very burdensome, but he says it's a broad way and it leads to destruction. Except your righteousness exceed theirs, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet their righteousness, their religion, as strict as it is, is a broad way that leads to destruction. And why was it broad? Well, it was man-made, wasn't it? It was man-made in spite of the little resemblance it had of God's Word left in it. It was man-made. It was man's tradition. It was man's commandments. It was a lot of personal convictions and personal preferences and the traditions of men. And it was impossible, uh, it, was impo it was possible rather to keep these things if you had a mind if you had a very strong will, if you had real convictions in your heart, you could keep these things. The Apostle Paul said that he lived 
according to the strict traditions of the fathers. And he said concerning the outward observance of the law, he said, I was blameless. So it's possible to keep these outward convictions and traditions of the elders if you've got a strong will and a strong mind and got the time. I guess you could do it. And Christ is going to define His way. He's going to define His way as being a way that's much more narrow. Well, they had all these traditions that they were keeping. And everybody thought, man, that's a strict religion. And it was. But the Lord Jesus is going to define His way as being a much more narrow way. And He's going to tell them that except they enter this straight gate that He's talking about and walk this narrow way that He's talking about, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. His way was opposed to their way. What was their way? It was man-made. A man-made way. That's why He called it the broad way. And it was a broad way because man, if he had a will, if he had a mind to it, and he applied himself, he could do it. He could do it. I couldn't. But they did. Some of them did, didn't they? Paul said he did. What makes the gate so straight and the narrow so way that the Lord Jesus preached? One is this. It wasn't man-made. That's the difference between His way that He was preaching, His sayings, and their way. Theirs was man-made. His wasn't. His was ordained of the Lord Himself. It was His sayings, Lord. It was His Word. The Lord's way. It's His sayings, His Word, His commandments. I am the way, the truth, and the life. They said, we've made the way. We've set up a way. He said, no, your way's not strict enough. Your way's not narrow enough. Your way's man-made. I am my way. I'm the truth and I am the light. And this gate that the Lord Jesus is preaching to us, and this way that's narrow that He said Him before, goes beyond just saying, Lord, Lord but it's doing the will of the Father. It goes beyond prophesying in His name and casting out devils and doing many wonderful works. It's hearing Christ's sayings and keeping them. The difference in their religion and Christ's way is as stark as building on the sand as opposed to building on the rock. That's the difference in their way. And His way. And not only is His gate and His way not man-made, but it's of the Lord, but to enter this gate and to walk this way is impossible with man apart from the absolute free grace of God. You might be able, if you're strong enough and you have enough will about you, to buckle down and keep all these commandments. Man, you two kept a lot back yonder, didn't you? But the way the Lord Jesus is preaching to us here, 
It's impossible for man. It's like what the apostles asked the Lord Jesus one time. They said, Lord, who can be saved? He said, man, that's impossible. And that's what he said about this straight gate, this way, this message that our Lord has been preaching for us. It's impossible. With man, it's impossible. It's no surprise to us when we get into the heart of our Lord's sermon here that we've been studying about. If you'll talk to honest people about it, one of the first things they'll say is, I just can't do it. I'm sorry, I just can't do it. That's being honest, isn't it? When I get into the heart of this message, that's what comes to my mind. I just can't do it. I just can't live like that. Outward religion is easier than heart worship and heart service, isn't it? It's easier to guard the outward conduct than it is to watch over the attitude of the heart and the motives of the heart. It's easier to seek man's approval and the pat on the back than it is to seek God's will. Big difference, isn't it? It may be easy in some cases to merely be passive and not strike out. There's a lot of people like that. There are some people that have some character about them. If you went up and slapped their face, they'd look, look at you in the eye and say, I'm not going there with you, and they'd turn and walk off. There's people that have a strong character that they can be passive right in the face of somebody attacking them verbally or physically. But you know, the Word of the Lord goes beyond that, doesn't it? He's not just talking about being passive. He's talking about if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, offer to him the left. If somebody makes you go a mile, you voluntarily go too. If you have enemies that's persecuting you, you really love them. It's not just about being passive. It's about really loving your enemies. Blessing them that curse you. And doing good to them that hate you. And even praying for them. Pouring out your heart in prayer to God for your enemies. And I think when we begin to look at this message, we realize, man, I can't do it. And it's because it's a heart thing. It's not outward. It's not getting up this morning and, and getting my pen and paper and saying, now this is what I'm going to do today. If somebody confronts me, I'm going to be as humble as I can be and I'm going to love them. And, and you put down all of these ways that you're going to love. It's not that, is it? It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's of the heart. And that's what makes it tough. You write down all your rules and regulations and what you will do and what you won't do. And the first time somebody looks at you cross-sided, you cuss them in your heart. So that's what makes it difficult, isn't it? That's what makes it impossible. To enter this straight gate and walk this narrow way, it makes it impossible for the natural man. He absolutely cannot do it. There's a certain aspect of this sermon, and I'll say this. Others have said it, and I think it's so. 
There's a certain aspect of this sermon on the mount that our Lord preaches to us that is very discouraging. Very discouraging. I can almost hear some say when we got ready to study this Sermon on the Mount. Oh man, Bruce is going to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. I can't wait to hear this. And then they begin one at a time to drop off. One at a time to fall away. And why is that? I'll be the first one to admit it. It's not me that causes it. It's this Sermon on the Mount. There's something about this that goes home to our hearts that shuts us up and makes us know and feel our utter ability to live like the Lord tells us to live. And and from that sense, it's very discouraging. It's very discouraging. He says here in verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect as your Father. Love, he done said this, love even as your Father loves. Be good even as. Be pure at heart even as. Are you kidding me? The eternal holy God in whom is no darkness at all. Be you just like Him. Be you perfect. We look at some of these things and realize our inability, and our, uh, man, it it does. It is discouraging. I'll be the first one to admit that. I don't think the world lacks this sermon as much as they thought they did at first. They say, "Oh, let's live our lives according to the Sermon on the Mount." Until you get in the Sermon on the Mount, and then they drop off and say, "Well, we didn't know it taught like that. We thought it was just the outward, you know." Doings and not doings and having a stoic character and not lashing out. And yet at the same time, this is one of the most uplifting and encouraging sermons that was ever preached for those who have been given a heart and grace to live their lives according to this sermon. Don't you find it so? Some have called this sermon of the Lord Jesus the most paradoxical passage in the whole Bible. It's paradox. There's a paradox here. And it is all the way through it. Let's go back to the beginning. Look in verse 3 of chapter 5. Look at what a paradox our Lord gives us. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's two two words. Both of them are in the present tense. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the poor. They have a kingdom. How could that be possible? Are you poor or are you rich? Are you in poverty or do you have a kingdom? Surely you can't be both. And yet that's what he said. What a paradox that is. Blessed are the poor. And he says here in verse 10 and verse 12, Blessed are thee, and that word is happy. I sometimes wish they had translated this happy. Happy are they which, which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Happy 
are ye, in verse 11, when men revile you and persecute you. Can you be happy when people persecute you? What a, what a uh, paradox this is. You're happy because you're persecuted. And he even goes ahead here to say in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Luke says it like this, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy when your name is cast out as evil. When you're reviled, uh, you're happy. Ain't that a paradox? When Peter and John was beaten before the Sanhedrin, they left their presence that day, and the Scripture says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. How can you rejoice when you suffer shame? They pulled their shirts off and laid many stripes across their backs. They exposed them to shame and embarrassment. And yet when they left the presence of the Sanhedrin, they were leaping for joy. Isn't that a paradox? What is it then about this sermon that is so encouraging and uplifting? Well, it's this. When you and I realize we've been given a heart and grace to do what we cannot by nature do. The Lord shuts us up. He makes us realize our inability. He makes us realize our poverty. Then He turns right around and gives us a heart and gives us a grace to do what we know that we cannot do by nature. To suffer evil with no desire to revenge yourself. Boy, that's grace, isn't it? To truly go the extra mile without being forced. To truly turn the other cheek willingly. To love your enemies. To bless them that curse you. To do good to them that despise and hate you. That's not my nature. To do that is contrary to my nature. And I tell you, when they whipped Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, it wasn't their nature to take that either and not lash out. Both of those men were strong-minded men. There was, there was one day when John and James got so mad at the Samaritans, they wanted to call fire down from heaven and destroy them. They were fighting men. You didn't dare get into their face. You had a fist fight on your hand. And Peter, when they came to get the Lord, he drew out a sword and cut one of them's ear off. These men were strong-willed men. And yet, when they brought them up and jerked up their, their shirts and beat them, they offered no resistance. They went out rejoicing. What was that that enabled them to do that and rejoice in it? They had a new nature. They had grace in their hearts. And that's what's so uplifting and encouraging about this message that our Lord preaches here. When you come to realize that He's given you grace to do what you could not and would not do. The Lord Jesus Christ refuses to give us a religion that has standards anyone can live up to if they only have a strong will. He gives us standards to live by. He gives us a life to live that nobody can live. 
apart from His grace. He has to give us a new nature, doesn't He? He has to give us a new disposition, new desires, new will, new strength. The Apostle Paul said about his infirmities, I glory in them. How in the world could a man glory in his infirmity? How could he glory in his weakness? been discouraging, wouldn't it? I glory in my infirmities. How can you glory in your infirmities? Well, he goes on to tell us. He tells us this. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I glory, he said, when men oppose me. I glory when men speak evil about me and reproach me for Christ's sake. Because then I feel His power. I feel His grace in my heart. That's what's so uplifting about this message our Lord preaches to us. I think one thing so encouraging about this sermon that our Lord preached is this. That we realize the Christian life is a continuation of the life of Jesus living it out in us. I think that's what the Christian life is. I really think it comes right down to this. It's Jesus Christ living in us. I love how Paul said that in Galatians chapter 2. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Then he stopped. And he said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's not me living this. I can't live this life. I can't suffer as I've suffered. I, I can't go the extra mile as I have. I can't turn my face. I can't love my enemies. I can't pray for the Jews while they persecute me and love them. It's not I, he said, but Christ liveth in me. And I think that's the secret when we begin to realize Christ living in us. Jesus is poor in me today. Jesus mourns in me today. Jesus is pure in heart in me today. Jesus is reviled and persecuted in me today. Jesus turns the other cheek in me today. Living in me, He loves His enemies. That's the way we live the Christian life. It goes beyond just doing, doesn't it? I would go so far as to say this. The union between Christ and His own people is not only so vital, but it's so real that this life they live is Jesus living in them and through them as the branch and the vine have this union together. And abiding in one another, the branch brings forth fruit. Here's what the Lord Jesus told His apostles in John 15. He said, I'm the vine. What does that mean? That's where the life is, isn't it? That's where the sap comes. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Nothing. This sermon is indeed a paradox. 
It's both discouraging and it's encouraging. Without Christ, we can do nothing. And boy, we feel it, don't we? Don't we feel that sometimes? We can't pray. We can't believe. We can't hold on the way. We can't preach. We can't teach. We can't sing. We can't worship. Without Christ, we can do nothing. We can do more, no more than this publican did, who the Lord says He can only love those who love Him. We can do more than these Jews did who, who lived self-serving lives and had a paste on righteousness. That's all we can do. We can do nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the encouraging aspect of this message. We can do all things through Christ who lives in us and gives us His strength. That's the encouraging part of it. We can live that life without it being grievous or burdensome to us. You know, to think about turning the other cheek, you'll think, man, it's just, I'll do it, but man, I hate this. That ain't the kind of life we live. That's not what he's talking about at all, is it? I'll go the extra mile because I've been forced to do it. It's not that. It's, it's living out this Christian life without being grieved about it all even having a measure of joy in it and satisfaction and peace in this life. And boy, when you realize, He's given me a new nature. He's made me new. He's given me grace. I love His Word. I love this sermon. I love this life that He's preaching to me. And as He gives me grace to live it out, it's so encouraging. Isn't this something of what he means here in verse 46? When he says about the publican, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? What reward have you? This is second time. The Lord's been talking about rewards. Look, look what He says in verse 12 when He's talking about them suffering persecutions. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. He's talking about the reward in heaven. Now, I don't understand this, I'll be honest with you, about rewards in heaven, but I do not believe that the fundamentalists understand it either. They talk about having so many stars in your crowns and ruler over so many cities and your stool is going to be higher than everybody else's stool. And, and I, 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 I remember a little funny thing somebody said one time. He's talking about to drive home a point about this, I guess. Uh, there was these two churches right across from, from each other and the street divided them. This man said on Sunday morning, he's walking down the street and he could hear this congregation singing, and he could hear this congregation singing, and this congregation was singing, Will there be any stars in my crown? And this congregation was singing, No, not one. No, not one. <laughs> so that's the way to emphasize it. I don't believe they've got a handle on this at all. But will there be rewards in heaven? 
Well, he said that, didn't he? So we can't say, no, there's no reward in heaven because he said, great is your reward in heaven. But think about this. What would be the greatest reward for you when the Lord took you up to heaven? Can you imagine standing before the Lord of glory? The King on His throne, Matthew 25. Standing there, Him that loved you and gave Himself for you that the saints bow before. Holy, 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 you, you stand before Him. And He looks at you with those kind, loving, tender eyes and says to you, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you came and ministered to me. You did that for me when you lived down below. You did that for my glory because you loved me. What would that mean to hear the Lord of glory say that? Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Come into the joy of the Lord. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Come into the joys of the Lord. Wouldn't that be rewarding itself? I don't even want a crown, let alone stars in it, do you? <laughs> but to hear the Lord say that, oh, what a reward that would be. Just to know that He was pleased with what He gave us grace to do in this life. But here in our text, he's talking obviously about a present reward. The way he reads it here, he says, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? That's present tense. What's this reward? There's a reward right now. And I think that reward right now is is simply this. We go beyond what the publican could do. He only loved those who loved Him. Don't we go beyond that? We love our enemies. Men force us to go a mile. The publican would have did that. But that's just all that he could do. He wouldn't volunteer to go another mile. We're not like the publican. We're not like the world. We love this sermon, don't we? We love His sayings. We love His Word. We love His commandments. We love loving our enemies. We love praying for our enemies. We love having a heart to do that. We love it when our motives are pure. When we can stand before the Lord with a clear conscience. I love that, don't you? Isn't that a reward in and of itself? That publican has no reward. Those Pharisees and scribes have no reward. But I tell you, the reward of the Christian is just this. The Lord has made him a new creature. The Lord has given him grace. Christ is living in him and working in him to will and to do. And he can live this Christian life. He can live it. By God's grace, he can live it. And that's reward enough. That's what makes this message so encouraging. The Apostle Paul was accused of preaching the gospel for personal gain. And this is what he said. He said, if I do this thing willingly, if I preach the gospel willingly, 
I have a reward. And then he turns right around and tells us what that reward was. What is my reward then? And you know what it was? That he preached the gospel willingly and not for personal gain. You know what his reward was? Motives. Pure motives. He lived for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. He lived for the good of lost souls. And boy, that's a reward, isn't it? That's a reward. And lastly, I think the Lord Jesus does something here that you and I should be careful that we do. A Christian, a believer, is not like this world. He's not like the public. He goes beyond what the publican does. Sometimes we say, and I know why we say this, we'll say, well, there's no difference in me and, and, and the world. We say that to lost people sometimes when we're witness to them. There's no difference in me and you. And I know what we mean. By nature, there's no difference in us. I realize that. But there is a difference if you're a child of God. And it's as much difference as daylight and dark, light and death. Because Christ has given you a new heart and a new spirit. He abides there and God is your Father. You are different than the world. The world can't look up to heaven and say, My heavenly Father. He's not their Father. He's their God. But He's not their Father. But you can, can't you? You can. It's a wonderful thing that God is your Father and you're like your Heavenly Father. And you're being conformed to the image of God's dear Son. Brothers and sisters, I hate to say it like this. It sounds awful, but you are special. You are special. We don't think of ourselves that way because the Lord has stripped us. He's made us poor in spirit. But you're special. You're you're the Father's children. Christ abides in you. He sups with you. You love Him. And He loves you. You're special. You are different. You're absolutely different. And may God give us grace to live out that difference in our life. And I think if He has saved us, He does. 